0: I have a friend in town today that is like family to me. I'm not going to make him stand up and embarrass him. But he's visiting this uh, weekend, and he came up with all of his kids, and so we just had a great week together. But I want to tell you a quick story about Vincent. You ready, Vincent? <laughs> Growing up, this is my oldest, longest childhood friend. I mean, we were I, he's the first person I can remember, first guy that I remember being my friend from just childhood. And so eight, nine, 10, something like that, we didn't have a lot to talk about in life. So we were talking about our lunch, and so we were talking about carrots, and we were talking about eating these carrots and stuff like that. And at this point in our time, we just started being able to figure out the benefits of food, the minerals and the calcium or whatever, the vitamins and stuff. And so carrots are filled with what? Vitamin A? Vitamin A, yeah, look at us scientists. He's telling us on how vitamin A does what? It improves. It's known to improve your eyesight. And so Vincent and me are hanging out. We're talking about how he's eating lunch or whatever. And he ate this whole bag of carrots. And I remember to this day, I don't remember a lot about my childhood, but I remember this conversation. He remember him telling me I ate a whole bag of carrots today and I now can see like a mile away. (laughs) Really? And so I had two responses. One was I doubt it. And my second was, I went home and ate a bag of carrots and tried it, okay? And so I think that that's probably not abnormal to us. We hear something on the news, or a friend tells us something about going fishing, okay? Or somebody tells us something, we see a tweet, and we have this knee-jerk reaction of, I doubt it. I doubt it. We're in a series today on Easter people. And maybe you're a little bit confused about why we're still doing a series called Easter people a week after Easter happened. Well, you see, last week we talked about Jesus and two thieves and their response to Jesus, how their opinions and their perspective shaped how they approached Jesus. And one of them found salvation that day. And there were some people in this room last week, in downstairs in Kids Church last week, that found salvation last week. A life-changing, life-altering moment, an experience with God that will forever change their life. You got to see the expression of that today with baptism. The public declaration of experiencing Jesus. So, what comes after Sunday though? Monday. And so you have this life-changing, life-altering God experience right here in this room or online. And then the normalcies of life come. And you go back to your normal job or your normal family or your normal problems. And the question that can creep into your mind that Satan wants to put there is, did that really happen? Was it real? And I kind of doubt it. Or maybe that wasn't your story last week. Maybe you've been in this church or in the faith for a really long time. Since you were a kid, you've believed. We've had moments or seasons in your life where God didn't show up how you thought he would, or God didn't show up how you wanted him to, and you start saying, I doubt it. Or maybe you're sitting here today or online, and you've not committed to this religion thing. It's still just kind of new. There's still things out there of like, is God really real? Was Jesus really the son of God? Why did he not answer this prayer? Why did that bill not get paid? Why did this person not get healed? And you begin to doubt it. We're talking about doubt today. And if that's you, and at any point in your life, you can relate to those feelings. You can relate to that question. You are in good company today. Because we're going to be finishing up our series on Easter people today, looking at the people that were closest to Jesus in his life here, his physical ministry here on earth. The people closest to him. Trying to be exactly like him and learn from him, to become like him. And how every single one of them doubted who he was. That's where we're getting into today. Before we get there, can we just take a moment? God's already shown up in so many ways. But can we just take a moment and just take a second to just invite him in? to open our minds and clear our heads. Father God, we just thank you, God, for what you've already done today, Father God. Thank you, God, for the privilege of getting to be with the church body, God, and to experience the declaration of faith, God, to sing with our voices and to lift worship up corporately, God, to pray corporately, God, with brothers and sisters, God, to be able to gather together and to just worship the one person that can actually make a difference in our life. Lord, I pray that you would just help my words to be clear I pray that there be nothing blocking what you're trying to speak to us today, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. After three years of following Jesus, listening to his teachings, believing, hoping that he was the Messiah, in the middle of the night, on a normal day, he was taken, he was beaten, he was stripped of his clothing, hung on a cross, and crucified. Jesus' followers coming after the crucifixion were completely, utterly devastated. Left in a space where they didn't know what the right next step was, they didn't know what to do. They thought, here's the Messiah, here's the salvation, here's the answer to all of these prophetic words of faith. Yet he was murdered, yet he was killed. What do we do now? Here's where all of our hope was, and it's gone. I'm going to read just a quick section. You don't have to turn there, but Mark 16, verse 9 through 14 does a really good job of just clarifying all of the people that were experiencing doubt after Jesus died. Mark 16, verse 9, it says, After Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went to the disciples who were grieving and weeping. Notice that three days later, the disciples were still grieving and weeping. Still experiencing the pain, still experiencing the loss of Jesus dead. Verse 11, but when she told them that Jesus was alive, that she had seen them, they didn't believe her. Afterwards, he appeared in a different form to two of his followers who were walking from Jerusalem into the country. They rushed back to tell the others, but no one believed them. Still later, he appeared to the eleven disciples as they were eating together. He rebuked them for their stubborn unbelief because they refused to believe those who had seen him. After he had been raised from the dead. These were trusted people. These weren't just like comment on the outside. I've heard of Jesus and I've heard of this Christianity thing. These were the people that were following him intimately. Mary Magdalene was one of a few women that would travel with him and take care of him and cook for him and take care of his needs. They were committed to who he was. The two men that were on the outside walking on their way from Jerusalem away, they were people that were not their immediate apostles or disciples, but part of that larger group that still followed Jesus, still were part of his ministry. We're going to talk about it a little bit later. They had hoped that he was the Messiah, the Savior. And then finally we come to the 11, the people that had walked with him and followed him and studied him in the hopes of becoming like him. And every single one of them was grieved and sad that he had passed away. When in Luke's version of this, when Mary comes and tells them that he's raised, Luke says they thought it was nonsense and they didn't believe her. Like, what are you talking about, woman? You're just hysterical. Go away. What's crazy about this to me is how they were believing a lie. They were believing that Jesus was dead, even though the opposite had happened. He had raised from the dead. the, The truth was there, but they were believing a lie. But God didn't show up how they were expecting their doubt was more powerful than their hope in Jesus. They had hoped that he was going to be the Messiah, hoped and anxiously waited for him. But what they saw in front of them was more powerful than what Jesus was telling them. Jesus told them for a long time through his ministry what was going to happen. He told them for what was coming. The prophets just told it and the prophecies described what was going to happen. But the physical evidence was a lot stronger to them. Than what God had said. And so it was a lot easier to trust what they could see and touch in front of them than what Jesus had told them. There was a clear disconnect between their heads and their hearts. And there's no judgment here on me because I, I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to be driving and to feel worried or anxious or to feel frustrated or to uh, feel these things coming to me that I know I shouldn't be feeling. I know in this situation, I can remember specifically a a thing that happened recently in the last couple of months that inspired fear in me. And feeling that fear in me and starting to take over and take over my mind, but also having the thought, I know I don't need to be scared. Jesus is here, but still giving license to fear. Like I knew the truth, but I let the things in front of me speak more truth to me than what I knew. And the disciples were feeling this kind of disconnect between their head and their heart. That Jesus, our hope, and our Messiah is gone, but we just can't believe it. We just will not believe it, even from eyewitnesses. Luke chapter 24, I think, just characterizes the thoughts that were going on so well. This is Cleopas and uh, one. We don't know who he was, but these were the two men walking from Jerusalem that Jesus shows up to, and he starts talking to them. And Jesus shows up in disguise. He hides his true identity from them. And so he's just talking with them, trying to understand and and, uh, reach them where they're at. And so he shows up in ignorance, like, what's happening? Why are you so sad? And so verse, Luke 24, verse 18, we pick up the conversation. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened in the last few days. Which is hilarious because he's talking to Jesus, right? Okay, I think he knows what's going on. Verse 19, Jesus, and it doesn't say this, but I would assume almost sarcastically says, What things? Like he didn't know. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles. He was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people, but our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who would come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. And here we see that because God didn't act how they wanted him or expected him to act, the Pharisees were more powerful than God's word. Wow, he, he didn't come and save us. We had, we had hoped it. We remember last week how we talked about how there were many self-proclaimed messiahs, zealots that would rise up and cause rabble rising, and gather religious uh, uh, zealots around them to say, follow me, follow me, follow me. But here's Jesus. And he had gained this huge audience of people that were hoping, hoping for freedom, hoping for safety, hoping for peace, and believing that Jesus was it. But instead, but, man is stronger than God, is the lie that they let themselves believe. But... Our religious leaders were stronger than God and they killed our Messiah. But God isn't strong enough to provide for this financial situation. But God isn't strong enough to be able to answer how I hoped He would. But this relationship is still broken. But all these things that we expect and hope, and when those things don't happen, fear and doubt and hurt and pain do this thing in our heart that starts disconnecting us from God, and we start thinking is God really there? Is He real? I'm starting to doubt it. Is God who he says he is? Because it doesn't feel like it. I'm starting to doubt it. In the absence of hope, doubt starts to take its place. We had hoped, but our religious leaders were stronger. My whole point in saying all of this is that the people who were closest to Jesus, they literally could touch him and see him, spent time just walking with him and eating with him. The ones that if anybody should never have had doubt, they doubted Jesus. And so if you find your place today where you can say, I I have doubt," or you remember a season that you went through and you said, I have doubt. Know that you are not alone and that you are in good company. Because these men and women were some of the most incredible Christians that we have ever seen the example of in their life. Yet, they doubted Jesus. We're like 15 minutes into the message already. I have not told you who the Easter person is that we're talking about today. Are you ready? Have you already guessed it? Who is it? Thomas, the doubter. So if you would turn in your Bible to John chapter 20, we're going to be spending most of the rest of our time from this, verse, this passage today. John chapter 20, verse 19, or verse uh, 24, excuse me. John chapter 20, verse 24. So the five, six, four, five verses right before this passage we are about to read, Jesus actually shows up to the other 10 disciples. Judas has fallen away, there's 11 left, and while Thomas is out, we don't know what he was doing, but he was not there. Jesus shows up, he speaks to the disciples, he breathes his spirit on them, and then he goes away. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 24. We're going to read through the whole thing, and we're going to come back and kind of dissect it verse by verse. John chapter 20, verse 24. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord... But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nails, wo- nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, place my hand into the wounds in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger right here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound on my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. It's interesting, the Bible gives Thomas the nickname, the twin. We see that a couple times in scripture. His nickname, the twin. But because of this one moment, the church has forever nicknamed Thomas Thomas the Doubter. Which is kind, kind of a bummer for him, right? Like I wish like it, it, uh, this one moment, this one, like an eight-day period, and forever, he's known as the doubter. Like that's me like being known as, oh yeah, not Josh the pastor or Josh the Father or Josh the Asian, whatever you want to call me, but Josh the the kid that fell out of his chair because he was so tired at school during college and fell in front of everybody. Like it happened one time. Can we just forget it? Like, take your worst scenario, and that's what they call him forever and all eternity. You know what's crazy, though, is that Thomas isn't this half-hearted follower of Jesus. If you back up to John 11, we only get a few mentions of Thomas in the gospel. This is one of them. But the first one is in John 11. We actually get a story. He's listed as a disciple before that, but this is the first story we have. And this is where Jesus is approached about Lazarus. And they come to him and say, your, your friend that you love, he's sick, come, 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 come heal him, come heal him. And Jesus delays. And Jesus has this conversation with him and saying, Lazarus is dead, but let's go. And they're telling him, don't go. His disciples are saying that. You were just there a few days ago. Don't you remember the religious leaders, the people were so angry they were trying to kill you? Do you remember that they were trying to stone you? And Jesus talks to them a little bit more. But Thomas's response is just like quippy, little pessimistic, like, but it's belief. He says, John eleven eight. 8, he says, the deci- but his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, oh, sorry, sorry. Verse 16, John eleven sixteen. 16, they said, oh, no, where is it? <laughs> uh. Oh, good job, tech team, save me. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with Jesus. And so this is the man that was willing to follow Jesus to death. But remember, he loved Jesus. He loved Jesus. We love Jesus. But to him, he wasn't just somebody that comes into your heart, speaks to you. He was somebody that spoke physical words to him. He walked with them, knew how he liked his fish or rice or whatever they were eating. Like he knew Jesus, knew him intimately as a brother, as a leader. And just a few days ago, he had been murdered in front of him, taken, beaten, stripped. The worst things you can imagine to a person and crucified in front of him. So here's not Thomas, somebody that doubts easily. I believe that Thomas was somebody that believed and followed Jesus and trusted Jesus. But all the evidence in front of him said that Jesus is dead. You believed a lie. God's not real. And he doubts it. And we get this name, Thomas the Doubter. Let's go down to start with verse 24 through 25. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, place my hands in the wounds at his side. If I was Thomas, I think this would probably be my response too. We would have no idea what Thomas was doing, but we know that he hadn't forsaken them. He was still gathering with them. And can you imagine... That you are just so sad, so frustrated you go out for a walk to clear your head. Or you needed groceries and so you volunteer to go to the market and fill up on supplies and stuff. And you get back thinking that you're leaving a funeral. Thinking that you're leaving this room of people that are also grieving. You come back and they're all laughing and excited and yelling about Jesus being returned. Wouldn't your next thought be, why didn't he wait for me? I was like just here. I could have been here if he'd waited 10 more minutes. I could have been here. And so his response is the most graphic one I could think of. No way, no way would Jesus do that to me. Unless I can stick my fingers into his wounds. I'm not gonna believe you. There's no way that Jesus I love would treat me like that. It's easy, I'm sorry. <clears throat> it's easy to come to Jesus. And to think that he didn't treat us how we expect to be treated, that he's not faithful, he's not real. I doubt it. Jesus didn't act how I expected, so I doubt it. Tim, can you run me that water, please? So we see that Thomas, I really want to give Thomas some grace here. We see Thomas and we nickname him the doubter, but I think he was somebody who was just so broken and hurting that he couldn't imagine Jesus showing up and not saying hi to him, not proving that he was there. Skip down to verse 26. Eight days later. Thomas lived with this reality for eight days. One of the common phrases we get is that misery loves company. I can't help imagine that every time Thomas sat down to eat food, everybody else was just ecstatic and so excited and talking about how Jesus is here and Jesus is back. But for eight days, Thomas lived in this pain. Eight days he lived still thinking, where was Jesus? Why wasn't I here? Why didn't you show up? It's so easy in our pain to feel like we're the only one there. It's so easy in our pain to start isolating. It's so easy in our disappointment that hope goes away and we start thinking, does God really love me? Does he really see me? Does he really even care about me? And it's a slippery slope from there to unbelief. Eight days of doubt and pain and anger and hurt. But verse 27 happens after verse 26. And what happens is that Jesus shows up and has provision for our doubt. He shows up again in the exact same way he did, through locked doors, just appears to them, greets them the same way. But what does he say? He says, Come touch the wounds, see them, I'm real. And so he approaches Thomas exactly how he asked to be approached. Imagine if he had just shown up and they had no context to this, and he's just like, Hey, everybody, touch the holes in my hands. What? That's gross. I don't even like to touch you on a good day. I don't want to let alone put my hands in your wounds. What are you doing, Jesus? But Thomas had declared, this is how I will believe. And Jesus in his love, he didn't have to do that. Jesus in his love approaches Thomas and treats him exactly in the way that he asked to be treated. Because he's a personable God. He wants to deal with you on a personable level. In a way that maybe nobody else would understand. But to you... It revealed all the truth in the world. And so Jesus does this to him. And on top of that, he says, stop, don't, don't be unfaithful. He says, believe. The more like literal translation of that is, don't be unbelieving, but believing. Because, I, you know, what? I don't think that backsliding or a loss of faith is like just stepping off the stage and falling down. I think it's a gradual descent where you get hurt You feel pain. You feel disappointment. The hope starts to slip away. And then day by day, you start making choices to not show up for group, not show up for church, to stop reading your Bible, to stop praying. It's a process of unbelieving. And so he's saying, stop unbelieving, but be believing. He said, this was the guy that was following me to become like me. Don't give up. Keep believing. Stop Becoming an unbelieving, but be, believe, be believing. The expositor's Bible commentary says, Stop becoming an unbeliever, but become a believer. It's a process of change, a process of becoming, we're growing into it. Once on the road to becoming like Jesus, Thomas was on a road of doubt and unbelief. But Jesus comes and gives a personable touch, so he addresses him. Verse 28, when you have a personal touch from God, truth is revealed to you. This is like almost over, a little over two weeks after Jesus had died. A little over two weeks after he had come back from the dead. He'd been showing himself to all these other people. And the truth was that Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. But Thomas was believing a lie. That the tomb's, Jesus is dead. Man is more powerful than God. That God's not powerful enough to show up how I was hoping he'd show up. But, when he experiences Jesus in this personable way that he asked to experience him, his first response is, my Lord and my God. No longer calling him master, no longer calling him uh, rabbi, no longer calling him teacher, but giving him the divine identity that he's been telling them this whole time. They've been trying to show to them, trying to lead them through trust and faith, to believe that I am not just a wise guy, not just a radical individual, but I am literally God. Do you believe in it? And this touch, this personable touch of God removes doubt from Thomas... And places the right name for God in his head, which is not friend and teacher and rabbi, which he is all those things. But he is first and foremost, Lord and God. And so a personable touch reveals the divine truth, even though he'd been leaving a lie up to this point. There's been one time in my life that I've been through a season of doubt. I have... I've been a Christian, I was raised in a a Christian household from the time I was a a young boy. My mother's faith is very strong and she would raise us, take us to church and teach us about the Bible and stuff. So I've been in the church world for a really long time. But there was one season of my life that I doubted God, doubted that he was strong enough. Uh, When I graduated high school, 18, I took two years to do a gap ministry, to It was unaccredited Bible college. I went to Pennsylvania for one year. And in the end of that year, the leader of that college came and started talking to me. And he was trying to create a satellite ministry in the south of Mississippi. And so I was one of six students that was asked and accepted the call to go with them in my second year. And to plant this uh, satellite ministry of the Bible college. And so we partnered with this large organization in the south of Mississippi, and they had a boarding school, high school, uh, middle school, and they had all these grounds, but they also had a camp and an equestrian program. So I went down as the camp manager. I went down and took over running all the retreats and organizing the events and facilitating the preaching schedule and all those kinds of things, and I went with them, and it was an incredible time in my life fell in love with the place, fell in love with not just our staff, but the whole, uh, the whole school staff, just incredibly loving, caring people. All the dorm parents, they gave up a life of uh, privacy and uh, autonomy, living with students and trying to uh, change and help and love on students, students that were really broken and hurting. Incredible, incredible time. But about seven, eight, nine months into being there, things started falling apart on our end, not the school's end, but our end. And so i went down with six people and then they had also had a couple staff families that went down as well so here's six 18 19 20 year olds and then a couple two three families that came down to help plant and to mentor and to guide us as well and so one man was a little bit older than me my boss but not just a boss he was a friend and a mentor somebody to hang with out on the weekends he'd drive together. The closest place that we could get off campus was a gas station. They had pizza. That was the closest thing. It was 30 minutes to Walmart, an hour to the closest uh, movie theater outside of that. And so we would go on the weekends and hang out all the time. I would talk to him about girl problems, like in problems of faith. Like he was the guy that I really invested a lot of friendship with. One day I woke up, a normal day, probably very similar to just taking a walk in the middle of a garden at night. I come into the building and everybody's crying, I don't know what's happening. In the middle of the night, that man had left his wife, three kids under five, ran away with a girl half his age that was also a close friend of mine. And so just like a shot to the heart, this man that I trusted just left, disappeared. On top of that, the leader that I had followed to this satellite ministry had a theological fallout with the sending church, sending ministry. And so I was caught in this crosswind fire between people I loved at the home campus and the people in the satellite campus. And there was a separation in the ministries. And so all these people that sent us and friends and mentors, I never felt frustration or hatred from them, but there's a different disconnect because the ministry separated. And then after that, it was one staff family after the next that left and then one student that I went with left. And so hurt on top of hurt. And then, The final thing that really just solidified it all home. We had been uh, doing life with students, like day in and day out. I would get a crew of 40 kids every day before dinner. And I would go and give them all these different jobs and drive them around, drop them off. I would eat in the dining hall with them. I would go and play music in the rec center on the weekends and lived with them and just was doing life with them. Over the course of that same month, they had a term called shipped out, which means that you messed up so bad, you violated the school's regulations that it was almost like a death in the community body. They would just, you would pack up your bags and leave. You had no chance to say goodbye because they didn't wanna spread it. And so whatever it was, about 30 students who I'd poured time and hours into over the course of eight, nine months, got shipped out, 30 kids that I had talked to and then they did drugs and then they snuck out and had sex or they had parties or unlocked the gate and were like let the horses out, like just crazy weird stuff that kids will do. People looking for hope. And over the course of just loss on top of loss on top of loss on top of loss, I was empty and numb and doubting God. God, why would you let me come to Mississippi and do this? God, why would you let this guy be my mentor god why would you let me get involved with these kids if you're just going to ship them out afterwards so much pain so much brokenness so i finished my contracted time to be there came back home got a factory job and worked 40 60 hours a week and whether they know it or not i started just really isolating myself from my friends and my family because i was in pain and i was in doubt and shame and confused about what god was doing God, why would you do this to me? And so I would just work. I would come home and I would sleep. I would go and work. I would just continually see people, but not let them in on what was happening. Talk to people, but not let them know that I was doubting God. I kept going to church, but stopped serving, stopped volunteering, stopped being a part of the community. And would show up on a Sunday and hear the songs and hear the message, but I didn't say, I believe that. Amen, there's power in the name of Jesus. I said, I doubt that. I doubt it. I don't think God's here. A couple months into that time at home, one night I came back from work and just felt so sad, so isolated, so distant. I was just asking, God, is there one person that cares about me? Is there one friend that I have that you would just send A minute later, I got a text message from two people I did not normally see, weren't part of my intimate friend group, weren't people that I really would associate with. And they said, hey, me and this person are going out to the woods for a bonfire. Do you want to come out? To them, it was a simple text. To Thomas, it was a weird request. But to me, it was everything I had been asking for. To exactly in that moment to have a personal touch from a personal God respond to me. If I texted you right now, you might think, oh, Pastor Josh is asking out to uh, bonfire. Great, let's do it. I love marshmallows. But to me, it was somebody saying, God, are you even there? And then he sends me two people in that minute of praying that prayer. I didn't believe at that moment. But it was enough to say, I think God's here. I just don't quite understand it yet. Why did he let all that happen? Stop becoming unbelieving, but become believing. And so I continued to go to church. And this church was a small uh, Jan, where I met before, United Brethren Church. A small, there was like 50 people. And they had one small group. They didn't have small groups. They had a small group. But the people kept inviting me to small groups. Not to lead, not to serve, but just to show up. And so over spaghetti, an invite of invite and friends that would reach out to me. And over time, I got to a point that one night in small group, I was sitting there. I cannot remember what we talked about. I can't remember what the discussion matter was. I can't remember what was taught. But I knew that I knew in a moment of realization, I went from a lie to a truth that God was real. God was there and that it's going to be okay. I don't understand why he necessarily let happen all of those things happen. But if I could go back and have the opportunity to change it, I wouldn't. The things and the pain that happened in that time of unbelief and frustration and heartache created the person I am today. It created a faith and a trust in God that I would not have had if life had always just been easy and up on the up. And so through a personable way, God helped me move through my doubt. I never felt shamed, except internally. I never felt thrown out by God. I never felt cast away. I felt like he just stood there and walked with me all nine months of being in pain and being frustrated and being sad and doubting. Is God really here? There's lots of ways that you can move through your doubt. You can press down in and just be thankful. You can approach it through, the, through your head and just trying to understand all those things. You can go to that classic question If a, God's love, but how can he let evil happen? You can go through all the apologetics of it. But the baseline for me that I felt like I needed to go through today is that God's a personable God. He will show up to you he will make himself, reveal himself to you in a personable way that might not make any sense to you. How many times have you got a text message to just go and connect with somebody, to go to a a game night or to a bonfire? Did you ever think, this is God's direct answer to my nine months of doubt? Probably not. But to me, in that moment, that one text turned me on to the understanding that Jesus still sees me, even though I'm doubting. Jesus still sees me, even though I'm a little bit hurt today. I want to leave you with just these few thoughts so that you can start making your way up. Hebrews thirteen twelve through fifteen says, "Be careful, then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning away from the living God. You must warn each other every day, while still today." So that none of you will be deceived by sin and harden your hearts against God. Christian Standard Bible says it this way, but encourage each other encourage each other daily while it's still called a day, so that none of you harden your so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. I wonder what would have happened to Thomas if he stopped showing up in those eight days. Would he've still believed? I wonder what would happen to me if I had been more open with the people around me earlier on. If I had just opened up and said, this is all the pain that happened and I don't know how to process it. You can have doubt. Don't feel shamed. Don't feel frustrated by that. But don't doubt alone. Keep showing up to church. Go to small group for the first time, even though you've been scared and you don't feel like it's worth your time or you're too busy. Go to small group and find some people you can sit across the table with and talk to them about your doubt. You don't have to do it alone. God's the one that revealed the truth to me, but it was in the company of other people that love me. I believe that a personable God will come and touch you and talk to you and speak to you in a personable way. A way that you would understand it. A way that reveals truth to you. But I believe that he's also love. I believe that the, you can feel love by being surrounded by a community of people that care for you and that love God. I want to read to you this one verse. And then I want to give you an opportunity to just pray over you today. Psalms 139. I'm going to read verse 1 through 12. In my devotion time today, I felt like I just needed one more psalm. So I opened up my Bible and read this. And then I felt like it was the psalm that we need to end it on today. It wasn't planned. I feel like you can get lucky a couple times, but when the luck keeps happening and happening and happening, and coincidence keeps happening and happening and happening, maybe it's just not luck and coincidence. Maybe there's a Holy Spirit or God that's ordaining things and moving things along in this life. Psalms 139 verse one. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know, when I sit down or stand up, you know my thoughts, even when I'm far away, you see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, and if I dwell in the farthest oceans, even there, your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in the darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you church, I don't know where you're at today. Perhaps you're just in a season of rejoicing. Perhaps you're in a season of doubt. Perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian because you just don't quite know yet about all of this. But what I do know is that you serve a personable God who wants to show up to you in a personable way. And wherever you go and wherever you are, He knows everything about you. And even if you try to get away from His presence, He still shows up even if it's annoying to you, because he's not going to let you go. His heart and desire is that everyone would come to know. Everyone would come home. I'd like to take a moment to just pray over you.